Welcome back. This is Better Things with Joe Bianca. This is episode three. Today, we're going to talk to Nick Tamaro, who's an excellent handicapper and horse player. And he's also the new race caller at Sam Houston Race Park in Houston, Texas. He does a great job. Just completed his first meet calling thoroughbreds and is doing the quarter horses now. He's a really sharp guy and we had a great discussion. Check out our chat with Nick Tamaro. So welcome back to Better Things. I'm so excited to bring this guy in, our latest guest, Nick Tamaro, who is an awesome handicapper and is now the new race caller at Sam Houston. Nick, thanks for, so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Joe. I'm really excited to join. I uh, watched the first couple episodes with David and Randy Moss, uh, both one, one a former colleague of mine and one definitely David, a friend of mine. So very excited to be on board. Absolutely. And I know I, I know you a little bit from back in the day. You're obviously you're a very sharp handicapper. I miss seeing you a little bit on the Naira broadcast, but you got bigger fish to fry now. You just finished your first thoroughbred meet as the Sam Houston race caller, and now you're doing the quarter horses over there. What's it been like relative to expectations? Is kind of new ground for you? How how you feeling about it? It's been great. It's it's really been a, a, a fun start to the year. And, you know, I'm on a personal note, um, a week after the meet started, my dad passed away. And, uh, and so actually calling the races was, was really cathartic, um, coming out here. And, and I actually called the night after the, he passed away and, and I, you know, told everybody here, they were like, what are you doing here? And I said, I would have heard a voice all night long that said, really, you're going to sit at home when you can go to the track. So, um, it was cause he was who introduced me to the game. So no, it's been, you know, it's, it's been a stroke of good fortune to have been in the right place at the right time last year and get an opportunity to call some of the quarter horse races to at least show that I was capable of doing it. And then um, I'm thankful that they gave me the opportunity to do it. So it's been a ton of fun. It's been the biggest professional challenge of my life, but um, something that you can can really measure in terms of whether you're getting better at it and um, and what it all entails. So it's been very rewarding and, and I'm, I'm ever grateful to have been given the opportunity. Absolutely. And, and it's well-deserved. You do a great job and you sound great. I'm so sorry to hear that about your dad, but let's let's dive into that a little bit. Your past, how you got into racing. What were the first tracks you were at? What were the first horses that were kind of stuck in your mind? Yeah. So my parents relocated to Texas. They're both from Brooklyn and uh, they moved down. There you go. They moved down in the, my dad in the late seventies and my mom in the early eighties. And of course my dad was incredulous that there was no horse racing in Texas. So it took until the early 90s for a racetrack to be built. We lived in the Dallas area then. And so he told me, I think I was seven or eight years old. And he said, hey, do you want to go to the racetrack on Saturday? And I, of course, knew little about what it meant. And what it meant was that we were going to get on a plane and go to New Orleans. So we went to the fairgrounds and uh, and I loved it. I mean, we it was the old fairgrounds. It was a couple of years before the fire. And I still remember sitting in a, in a box in the, in the clubhouse and we had a blast. And I, I was very inquisitive about his program and racing form. And, and I wanted to know, you know what he was looking at, how he was trying to figure out who to bet. My dad was a regular at Belmont and Aqueduct in the 70s. He was at Secretariat's Belmont. And, and so he was a big fan. And, and little did he know what a monster he was creating. But luckily, shortly thereafter, a little racetrack opened about 30 miles west of Fort Worth called Trinity Meadows. And it is now defunct. It was open from 91 until 96. And that was where we went. We lived 50 miles away and we went all the time. I mean, right. there were days where I got out of school at 3.15. He picked me up at 3.15. First post was four and we made it for the second and we stayed for the whole card. And, um, and then they introduced simulcasting here in Texas then. So we got used to betting pretty much any track we could. And 
and I was hooked. You know, I, I was I'm somebody who likes puzzles and I do crossword puzzles every day and and stuff like that. And so I I I, I love the exercise of figuring out who you think is going to win. And then obviously the the secondary portion of that, the more important part that we're talking a little bit about is the, the betting angle, too. Totally. And you know, you know, the second guy that I've had in three episodes whose dad was at the secretary of Belmont is David Aragona said his dad was there too. So that's unbelievable. Yeah. That's that's an incredible coincidence. But yeah, so, you know, honestly, I'm not just saying this because you're on the show. You're one of the guys whose opinion I respect the most out of anybody in racing. When did you start to feel like you were figuring out, figuring it out? Because, you know, I'm sure, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to bet the horses and it takes a lot of beating to get to the point where you feel confident and good about it. When did you start to feel like you, you had a good opinion and you were confident in it? Well, the real answer is any day now, right? <laughs> but, um, but, you know, in, in truth, I would say I've been positively influenced by a lot of people that uh, helped me uh, kind of hone my skills. And, and so, I mean, I, I would just pepper my dad with questions while, while I was a child. There was actually a, a remarkably large number of astute horse players at Trinity Meadows, and they all kind of gravitated together. There's a lot of people from other places because there was really no racing in Texas. So, I would ask them a ton of questions. I would keep a lot of notes. I would save the charts from the back of the racing form so that I could go over them um, in great detail. And and I would, you know, I would try and remember as much as possible what happened in races to identify what you could then kind of pluck out and, and use in the future to bet. It was probably after I graduated from college. I graduated from college in 2006 and uh, and I really started to to dig into it. And really the biggest influence on my handicapping by far and away is Andy Serling. So Andy and I have talked about the races on a regular basis for going on 12, 13 years now. And, you know, he really taught me how to watch a race critically, how to uh, look at what happens that the public doesn't see. And, And the biggest part of that is don't be overly result oriented. You know, look at the things that that. Um, you can interpret and take and use to your advantage. So I would say probably, you know, once I got into my 20s, I felt a little bit better about it. And, you know, I think that we, and you're probably similar, I think, you know, boy, if I knew what I know now when I bet that race, I would have crushed it. Yeah. Well, and also, especially like when you're starting to have a little success and you think, I know everything in the world, I wish I could go back to tell that guy there's going to be a lot more (laughs) covered before you start to figure this thing out. Um, but so I, one of the things I like about you is that not, not only do you have a good opinion and you're, you're, you're good on TV, but you're a, a really sharp handicapping contest player. You've had a lot of success in those contests. You know, how, how do you approach a handicapping contest relative to when you're just going to bet on a regular day? Uh, you know, similarly, but um, but obviously in a more aggressive and more tactical fashion. So my first real foray into a handicapping contest of the of the more betting variety was in 2012. I qualified for the Breeders' Cup betting challenge. And, you know, I was 28 years old and, and you know, was, was not making very much money. So being handed $7,500 to bet, there was a big fear factor there. And so I, I learned about myself that I remember I wrote myself a note at the end of the contest and, and I, it said, don't enter another one of these until you're ready. And so I waited a year and a half before I played another contest. And, and so what I did in doing that was you know, with the handicapping contest, what you really have to do, and they vary too, Joe, between the, um, you know, the big ones like the Breeders' Cup betting challenge, then you might have just a Naira does these $300 weekly contests where you're playing with a smaller bankroll, but you're still, tr- the principle's the same, right? You're trying to find an opinion or two and really, really make them pay for those. So it was probably then that I, I, I realized, 
you know, don't go out of your comfort zone. The difference, of course, is that if you're primarily a multi-race player and a horizontal better, you know, those are useless in a handicapping contest. So, I mean, I kind of feel like my, my comfort zone is taking a race and trying to, to really dig into that race and do with it what I can. So betting the exact, uh, getting involved in the wind pool occasionally, but also uh, betting the tries. And so I think that's kind of the main difference. I have been more difficult on myself in contests with just the way I play. I'm, I require myself to be right probably more than the average bear. And I admire these guys that, you know, the Christian Helmers of the world and Tommy Masses who can hit for 40, 50,000 on one race. That's just never been the way I've played. And, um, and so, you know, they've had a ton of success. So I've tried to introduce as much of that as I possibly can while understanding that, you know, betting four or $5,000 exact as in the Breeders' Cup betting challenge, that's just not comfortable for me. I, I can't, I'm not quite at that level. Can you just expound on that and what you mean by, by you're hard on yourself, harder on yourself in the contest? Yeah. So my best contest success was the 2014 Breeders' Cup and uh, me and, and basically four friends put in three friends, put in the $10,000. We divided it up evenly and I had been trying to qualify again. And, and we figured, you know, the hell with it. Let's just buy an entry and see what happens. And so first day, no success. We had about 3,800 bucks going into Saturday. And, and quite honestly, I was looking at the college football slate on Saturday morning. I was not, not enthused about what was going to happen. And so I, you know, the, I, I hit a, a trifecta in the, the third or fourth race. They were off the turf that day because there had been a lot of rain the night before for the non-Breeders' Cup races. And I hit a trifecta and I thought to myself, you know, you can do all right in this thing. Just be smart and play what, play in your comfort zone. And so, I mean, boom, I hit to try in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies for like 25, 22 grand. And, and two races later, I had gone from 240th to first. So, but because I didn't really have that quick strike approach to betting, I needed to hit again and again to stay in contention. And ultimately the mile that year was run right before the classic. And, and I ended up having $5 on the try because I, I mainly just used the Europeans that I thought made sense. And that included Caraconti, Anadan and, uh, and space, not space blues, but one of the, one of the horses that Jamie Spencer wrote, um, trade storm. So not that I'm remembering them too vividly, but, um, but I hit that. Right. Yeah, you remember the scores, right? I can probably remember yeah, all yeah. the bad beats, though. But so, boom, you know, I hit for 25,000 there. Well, at the end of the day, I hit I hit like seven trifectas. And so, you know, some of the guys that may have really – one of my better opinions on the day was I like Judy the Beauty over Better Lucky and another long shot. And a lot of those guys would have hit that race for maybe 50 or 60K. And, I mean, I hit it for like 12. So that was kind of where I realized as time went by, I have to develop more of the skill set to uh, to really zoom in on the good opinions and, and make them pay. Gotcha. And so much of handicapping, and I would I would assume I've never I've never played in one of those big tournaments, but I assume playing in the tournaments is trying to keep a clear head because it it, it really plays with your mind. Like if you have bad beats or if you have a bad day, not to get too down, not to go on tilt. Are there, is there any, give me the secret, Nick. Is there any way that you can get through that easily? Can you do meditation? Do you like, is, is there something special you can do to like move past the last day or the last race and stay focused? Yeah. What's funny is I think most people, especially in the racing world would consider me a pretty social guy. When it comes to those, I try to get as far away from everybody else as possible. So that day, that Saturday at Santa Anita, there's, have you ever been to Santa Anita? Yeah. Okay. So when you go in the clubhouse entrance, 
you get into like a little lobby area. And if you look up, there's like a little alcove over the second floor. Well, there's tables up there and nobody knew they were up there. So me and a couple of guys went up there and we were the only ones sitting up there on Friday. Well, then on Saturday, I switched sides of the room because I was no good on Friday. And of course, you can't sit in the same place. But it was great because it was away from everybody. And, you know, I was by myself. The problem was that, you know, I had partners in the contest and the Wi-Fi was garbage. So I, I started hitting these bets and I'm trying to talk to them about it. And I really can't. But the point being, yeah, I wanted to be I didn't want to hear people cheering. I didn't want to see a leaderboard. You know, I wanted to be as as uh, calm and measured about it as possible. So, you know, I really enjoy the the new setup at the NHC because we're all in one ballroom. But honestly, in the past, I would sit in an alternate place because for the same reason, I didn't want to hear cheering. You know, I didn't want to, I didn't want everybody at the table to say, Oh God, that 40 to one shot just came in. That guy had it. That guy had it. That guy had it. Yeah. Like really, maybe none of them had it. So, yeah. so I, I would try to be as reclusive as possible when that would happen. Um, because yeah, it, there's a huge mental component to it, just like with anything else, you know, if anything you do regularly that you want to get better at, you need to keep the clearest head possible. For sure. I want to just, uh, we're going to come back to the handicapping thing, but I wanted to ask a little bit more about, about your race calling gig. Um, you're, you're close friends with Travis Stone. He's obviously the race caller at Churchill Downs and does a great job. Um, was there anything that specific that he imparted in you or that's something that you picked up watching him and listening to him that you try to use now when you new job? Yeah, I mean, I, I've told people I'm kind of a Travis Stone acolyte. So I think you can probably hear some of, of what he says in, in what I say. And, and I listen to a lot of races anyway. But uh, when Travis got the job at Churchill and Travis and I go back to his early days of Louisiana Downs. Uh, but when he got the job at Churchill, I went to the Derby his first year and and we kind of the night before the race, we walked through winning scenarios for every horse. And, you know, we both kind of knew that American Pharaoh was likely to win, but he pretty much had something in mind to say, regardless of who it was. The key to it, though, is that when you do that, it is very easy to sound robotic and you don't want to come off as you know, oh, you don't want everybody to say, oh, God, he had to find a way to fit that line in. But, you know, what it helped yeah. me with is that Travis and I are both handicappers. So, you know, we we walked through the race basically as if we were handicapping it. You know, and here's what we think is going to happen in the opening half mile. And and that's a huge, huge part of race calling for me. You know, and so you'll you'll hear sometimes, you know, I'll make a comment about the pace. Um, and I know I can tell it took a few weeks, but looking through the binoculars, I could tell when they were going slow. And, you know, yeah. I might make a comment about somebody being on the lead and it being unexpected. And I just yeah. think that that kind of enhances the viewer's experience because they're 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 getting a little bit more buy in from the voice that they're hearing. And I think that 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 will help in the long run. So um, being a horse, I'm let's be honest, I'm a horse player who calls races, but um, that I, I can't you know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to sway from the original part of, of me in racing. Um, and so, yeah, Travis was, is a huge influence. Um, he's been very, very gracious about everything. And, and fortunately our, our big weekend here, he was actually in town. Um, and so, you know, I, he, he gave me some advice on one of the graded stakes races that we run here is at a mile and a half on the turf. And so he said, which is, it, it, this is not the kind of thing he says very often. He says, look, I'm good at calling three turn turf races. So let me give you some advice. And so he gave me, <laughs> you know, a few things. And, and he said, uh, he said, the first time they come to the wire, you should be through the field about one and a half times, but take your time. Don't rush through it because you will be, I mean, you will, you will be gassed by the time they're at the quarter pole. 
And, yeah. and he was right. And so I, I kind of reminded myself mentally the whole time, slow down, you know, call them one by one, obviously make sure you've memorized and, um, and just deliver it in a, in a calm and, and calculated way. So Travis has a very particular set of skills and it's calling three turn turf races. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. But so, so, and I also appreciate what you're saying. And I, I think it does help the horse player watching the race to feel like the race caller knows what he's talking about in terms of handicapping the race and what's expected and what's unexpected, because then it kind of reflects the way you're feeling and it helps the race develop, I think, in your mind. Um, but so how do you, do you bet less now that you have this job? Do you bet more? Are you are you more in tune with what's going on in racing less? Like, how, how does it compare? I probably well by percentage. My Sam Houston handle was a lot higher than than it would have been in prior years. So, um, yeah, yeah they, they don't they don't have a problem with me betting here, which is good. And uh, so, yeah, I probably did bet a little less, um, you know, just having more responsibilities. I definitely bet there were tracks that I've bet in the past with some regularity. Like I, I didn't place one wager at Oakland Park all year. And mm -hmm. that's a place that I usually would pay some attention to. It's generally popular down here with Arkansas being close by. But, you know, when you've looked at Sam Houston to, and prepared to the point where you know, I'm going on TV to talk about the races for 30 minutes before um, and all the other assorted tracks I look at for anybody who wants to pay me to look at those, um, I, I, I just didn't have time. So, yeah, I, I, I would say to answer your question, my by percentage, my Sam Houston handle was a lot higher. But um, I mean, I'm, I'm the guy that's grabbing the Aqueduct PPs off the printer here in the office before I, I head upstairs. Still printing them out, old school. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of back and forth. I, I yeah. you know, there are days where I still want to print them, but um, I I am probably more than fifty percent on the iPad. It's very clean. Yeah, I I feel like when I'm at the track, I definitely like to have like a racing forum that I can mark up, and then when I'm at home, I'll use the iPad yeah. um, or the laptop. Uh, but yeah, so. Sam Houston is a great track. And it's one of, I think, kind of one of the unsung heroes among horse players in terms of low takeout. They got big fields there. It obviously doesn't get a ton of national publicity, but I think they do right by their players and more people should take, should, you know, take heed to that and bet it. Why, why is that? Is it people that are in the management? Is it, is it just an overall kind of thrust of the track? Why do you guys do so right by the players? You know, I, I think the, the leadership going back about 15 years felt like with the with the signal growing in popularity in the evening time there needed to be something that helped it stand out and so Sam Houston was actually the first domestic racetrack to have the dime super and and it, that that became kind of the precursor to some more player oriented wagering uh, evolution and and that led to the 12% takeout in all the multis so I mean, we went to 12% takeout in all the multis i want to say about 10 years ago and it's just been in the last few years that uh, Indiana Grand and and uh, and Canterbury have now kind of matched it and eclipsed it a little bit, but we're still the only place that does it in every multi-race pool. Right. Um, yep. So, yeah, you know, I think it was it's one of those where, you know, we run at a time of year where the competition at night is not particularly robust um, or it wasn't years ago. I should say it's it's getting much more significant now with Turfway being a, a major signal with big purses and big fields and uh, Delta Downs is, is popular. They're going to be running at night next year. They haven't the last two years, but we wanted something that stood out a little bit. And, and I think with the, with the opening date being in early January and getting a date that was kind of uniquely ours and having the player friendly wagers, we could generate uh, enough chatter about it to really have some excitement. And so luckily it's played out very well. The other thing that we have going for us is that the state of Texas developed something called the horse industry escrow account three years ago. And what that did was it took some tax money uh, that was previously being 
diverted to other sources and put it into racing. So the, yep. the purse fund basically doubled. And, and so what that has enabled us to do is bring back some barns that maybe weren't here for quite some time and really develop an open company offering that um, that's, that's worthwhile. Understanding, of course, that, I mean, we're competing, sitting in Houston, Delta Downs is, is about 100 miles away. Fairgrounds is 200 mile, 250 miles away. And Oakland's 300 miles away. So, I mean, they're all close. Right. And, and New Mexico is not that far away. Texas is big. But um, but, you know, th there's a lot of competition in the market. So you want to do whatever you can to get the horses here and you want to do whatever you can to get the horse player attention as well. Texarkana, baby. It's, it's right. burning into my head. Um, it's, it's interesting you bring up the, the Texas purse thing, because I feel like everybody is very cognizant of that. We get these releases from the TTA for the sales Every single time there's a quote about how great everybody is doing because of that Texas law. So I think that's great. And that's kind of the opposite of where some other states are going, where they're kind of trying to do decoupling and all this other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it was kind of the, you know, the state has been very hard on racing in the sense that they've not entertained the idea of alternative gaming at all. And I mean, I shouldn't say it too loud in my office, but I think that there are a lot of people in this building that would prefer we have slots than the horse industry escrow account. But um, we are owned by Penn National Gaming. But at the same time, I mean, this was a lifeline. And obviously, yeah. going back to 2019, I mean, we were running 30, 32 dates here. And a lot of those were eight race cards. And, and I mean, we were handling around a million dollars. This is now the second consecutive meet where we've run at least 44 dates and we've handled an average of 2 million a night. So, I mean, it yeah. has made a, a dramatic impact right away. You know, you mentioned you're talking a little bit about college football before. I know you're a big sports guy. Now it's sports betting. It's it's not legal in Texas, is it yet, right? It is not. No. It's not. Um, assuming Thank it God. Does, <laughs> I'm saying, that's my question. Assuming it does get legalized there, eventually, how do you think that split is going to be between your racing handle and your sports betting handle? Oh, I'll tell you, Joe, I'm I'm a notoriously awful sports better. That doesn't stop know. me. That doesn't stop it, me. Yeah, it's true. It, it won't stop me. You know, I actually, we, we had the uh, I took the family on a little vacation to Florida early in the week. We stopped at Loberge in, in Louisiana on the way back, which is another Penn National gaming property. And they have sports books now. So sports betting is legal in Louisiana. And I kind of walked by and I looked in and I thought, I could probably make a future better too. And and I, I thought, you know, I could probably just roll my cash up and give it to my daughter to play with in the back seat, And it would, it would have a lot more. I'd get a lot more bang for the buck. I mean, I, I would see myself being recreational at most. Yeah. You know, I, I was actually listening to, to you talking to Randy Moss about it. And I've joked with people and been very similar is that you really lose the appreciation for the game itself when you have a bet on it. Yeah. You know, no, it's torture. Well, and especially now, like I'm watching like the NHL playoffs and it's it's like it 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 adds agonizing. It makes it agonizing, and you can't enjoy like just the, right. the the pure drama and the pure excitement of the sport. Yeah, it really yeah, takes away. Truth. I mean, it, because right. I mean, you're not. You know, you could you could be watching this incredible back and forth basketball game, and you know, you've got them plus three and a half, and they miss a shot down two and oh, foul, and you lose foul. a game by four, and it's like, oh my god, I completely wasted my time and money. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's it's legal here now in New York and New Jersey. So it's obviously I but I, I try to keep it just as like a little fun action thing. You know what I mean? Not put any serious money into it. Also, the other thing is and I've said this before that once you've played horses and once you've hit like a big pick five or a pick six or whatever, it's hard to get excited about waiting three and a half hours to cash minus one ten bets. You know, it's just and then you and then to try to chase that other high, you get into parlays and those are always frustrating. So, yeah. 
No, it's true. Well, and I laugh at, at, I follow a lot of the sports betting guys on Twitter. And so they'll, you know, some, some big upset will take place on a Sunday in the NFL and they'll say, oh, you know, at Circa, that team was plus 480. I was like, really? That's exciting because I can find you a five to one shot. That's a hell of a lot more likely to win than they were to beat those guys. Yes. No, absolutely. Yeah. Like even, even like the biggest long shots, even, you know, tennis, the biggest long shots, plus seven, 800, 900. And what does that what does that guy win? One out of every one hundred matches against the dollar, Djokovic or whatever. You mentioned basketball. I know you're a Houston guy. Um, you're a Rockets fan, right? I'm a Rockets fan. Yeah. So tell me this: as a, I'm not like a diehard Brooklyn Nets fan, but but I I liked what they were building before they traded for James Harden, and then once they traded for him, it all went to shit. Did you take any satisfaction like I did from the Sixers flaming out and James Harden being so terrible in that series? Yeah, a lot. I have to say a lot. Um, And in large part because, you know, it was like a revolving door of who are we going to pair with James here and and make it work. And and it just never, you know, it was never going to happen. And and really, one of the Rockets insider things I got emailed to me the other day said, basically, the shame about him getting traded is that it didn't happen three or four years earlier. And, and giving them a chance at a full rebuild a little bit before that. But I'm going to be very surprised if James Harden ever wins anything meaningful because he just doesn't look like he has the, the desire. He absolutely ha- he had. I don't know if he still has the ability, but um, he just look everything looks like he's dogging it. Yep. You know, it just doesn't look like he's he's in it for anybody but himself. Well, and it's so it, it's so obvious, too, because I think that, you know, sports pundits, they they kind of gas it up a little bit sometimes how much desire means in sports success. Right. When you see a guy like him, then it's really black and white. When you see a guy like him jogging around the court, not wanting the ball, just passing it away every time he gets it, you're like, that's a guy who doesn't care, which makes me think 99.9% of people do care because it's so obvious when I see it in him. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think he's the exception to the rule there, especially when you've reached the you know the level in the game that he has. You'd think that you'd want to tear down the walls to do everything you could. And, and it's a shame because, I mean, had Chris Paul not gotten hurt in 2018, that Rockets team that won 67 games was likely going to win the Western Conference. And I think they would have just steamrolled Cleveland in the in the finals, much like Golden State did. So that was probably their one opportunity. And of course, that was a team that really, when push came to shove, was better because of Chris Paul. Yeah. I mean, it was because Chris Paul is Chris Paul's also a guy who unfortunately hasn't won anything meaningful either. But I don't necessarily know. I think he gets probably a little too much blame for that. And when the Rockets were good, I think Harden got a little bit too much credit. So, yes, I did not shed a tear when I saw the uh, when I saw the Sixers lose and and my my friends from Philly got an earful from me. I said, you guys wanted that guy. Yeah, you got that's the thing. That's the thing. They were so excited when that trade happened. I was like, you watch you watch in a couple of months time. Yeah. And he's not. And I said I said to my friend Pat Cummings, who, of course, you know, as well, and who's who's been on on this network. um, I said, you know, he is not a Philly guy. As you guys like rough and tumble, blue collar, scrappy guys, you know, you want somebody who's going to who's going to leave it all out there. That guy leaves nothing out there. <laughs> I mean, he he's not your guy. He leaves it all in the strip club, though. That's where he leaves he it sure all. Does. I've heard he likes to make it rain. <laughs> um, all right. Just to tra- transition off that somehow. Um, we, we had this we had this chat this week on the writer's room because there's, there's this whole discussion now about the triple crown spacing with, with Rich Strike passing on the Preakness. 
And, you know, there's there's been a lot of people who are advocating for spacing out the Triple Crown more. Randy Moss, who was just on the show and whose opinion I obviously respect a ton, is in favor of that. I disagree. I think that if anything, we're kind of rewarding bad behavior and horses not running as frequently and trainers being too scared to run their horses. Where do you fall on that? Yeah, I'm definitely on your side. I, I have a lot of respect for Randy's opinion, but um, I think that's a. Uh that's kind of catering to a new element in racing in a detrimental fashion. And I think we really run the risk of, of um, well, first of all, I think there's two different conversations. The, the idea prior to 2015, the discussion of elongating the Triple Crown had to do with making it easier. And everybody thought, oh, it'll be a lot easier if we space it out more and you know they don't have to come back in two weeks and this and that. Well, then it happened twice. And so now the only part of the conversation that you get is, well, they're not going to run back quick enough, so we have to elongate it. Because in my opinion, it'll be a hell of a lot harder if it's run over the course of 10 to 12 weeks. I mean, it will be hard for you to keep your horse that good. Um, you will have you will invite in a whole new slew of, of new shooters. You know, theoretically, let's say the Preakness decided, well, we're going to go five weeks after the Belmont. So maybe there's a horse that wins the Derby and Belmont, and then in a year like this, they have Jack Christopher to contend with in the Preakness? You know, that wouldn't be fun. And and um, I mean, there are obviously a lot of trainers over time who've had horses that developed later in the year that were all very, very good. One of them has white hair and has won a lot of races and, and you know, had what three had three straight uh, or two straight Eclipse Award winners that didn't really jump onto the scene until August. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, as far as the it's unfortunate because in a year like this where Rich Strike didn't run back, you know, Pimlico's. Preakness itself and the undercard is obviously showing the ill effects of horsemen not running back frequently enough. I just think, Joe, there's so much danger in catering to them because then we're going to we're going to lose a, a great amount of tradition. We're going to lose the the standard that you have to maintain. And, you know, I went to at the at the symposium in Tucson last year, one of the more interesting panels to me. And I'm somebody with no experience on the, the racing office side of the game. You know, I'm just the guy who critiques the overnight, not the guy who puts the overnight together. And so one of the things that all and those were some of the best minds in the game that have had those jobs, you know, the likes of Mike Lakow and Rick Hammerly and um, and Tom Robbins and Martin Panza. And, and one of the things they all said was we have to give horsemen less options. Giving them more options is actually detrimental. And I think this is a good example of it, because if you you know, I understand that that trainers like Bobby Frankel changed the game in a way that he made it clear that his horses weren't going to run back in quicker than 45 to 60 days. And, and that is something that can exist while we still keep the triple crown schedule intact and, and something somewhat sacred. Yeah. And well, you're not, it, you put the races four or five weeks apart. Eventually that's not going to be enough time. Then we'll make it, right. you know, and now you're asking the public to care about the triple crown for two months. Like that's a big ask of the general public who really gives racing such little time a day to begin with that I just, it just seems so, so ridiculous. And also, like you're saying, I think there's too many graded stakes, which leads to too many stallions, which leads to stallions getting shipped overseas before they even have a chance to prove themselves. And there's too many tracks. You know, I wonder how you feel about this. Sam Houston is a smaller track, but Sam Houston is one of those tracks that actually does something to deserve its business. Like you said, you guys don't have the alternative gaming. You rely solely on on the purses and the, and the uh, and the handle. So I think that that's a smaller track that deserves to stick around. But there are so many small tracks across this country that are just slot machine parlors with a racetrack attached to it. And especially in the mid-Atlantic, I think there are so many race racetracks in a small amount of space 
that you have 9,000 options for where you can run your horse. So no wonder we have five, six, seven horses fields polluting this sport. I wonder, how do you feel about that? Do you think this sport needs a contraction sooner rather than later like I do? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I do, right? And I'm sympathetic to the people who would lose their jobs in that scenario. Yeah, no, it's not. You know, I don't I'm want not to saying, see that happen. Yeah, I'm not right. saying, like, you have to go, you got to go. It's just something that happens to happen naturally, I think, over time. Yeah, I agree. And I think, unfortunately, the tracks we've lost in the last 10 years were the wrong ones. You know, we didn't need to lose a, right. a racing jewel in Chicago, and, and we didn't need to lose a track in, in Boston. You know, we needed to probably needed to lose some tracks that were, you know, not generating a great amount of handle, not generating a great amount of interest and just giving a lot of horsemen options to run horses in races where the fields were six or seven. And if that track didn't exist, then it might've been nine or 10 at a bigger place. So yeah, I agree with that completely. And I think it's obviously, it's unfortunate that things have gotten to that point, but they have, and, and it's better for us to embrace it and do something about it and, um, and be positioned to, to make things kind of move forward a little bit. But um, yeah, I, as far as the graded stakes go, if if anybody wants to seriously have a conversation about elongating the Triple Crown, I want every race pre-Kentucky Derby to be a grade two at most because there should be no reason why a horse can be whisked off to stud immediately after the Kentucky Derby with a losing effort. And, you know, we've had that happen a lot. Yep. And um, it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't need to, it doesn't need to happen. And so basically, you know, even if the, the graded stakes committee divided it into two separate stacks and said, okay, these are preps and these are the main races, these are going to be the only grade ones. I mean, we've seen a decrease in the number of grade ones on dirt in this country, but we've also seen a huge increase in the number of grade ones on turf. Yeah. So, you know, you want to balance that out, I think, as much as possible. But I mean, you and I are, are not old and but we can remember when there were a hell of a lot more grade ones on dirt in new york yeah you know i can think of, of about five of them right now right off the top of my head that aren't grade ones anymore some of them aren't even grade twos anymore so you know you that's not necessarily a bad thing when it's done in, in the right fashion and it's done with the with a real end goal well and you think about the derby uh prep schedule i think if churchill downs had not instituted the points schedule and the qualifying points no horse would ever run more than once before the Derby. Instead, now that you have that and you generally need to run in more than one race to qualify for the Derby, you get 11, 12, 13 horse fields in the Risen Star. You get these big fields and it makes it, it, makes it exciting to, to pay attention to the Derby, to the Derby trail all the way up to the race. You know, if you get, if you get rid of, I'm not saying they're getting rid of that, but if, if you elongate the Triple Crown, get ready for four race schedules. The Belmont, the Derby, the maybe one race in the summer, and then the Breeders' Cup, because that's what's happening. I, mean, I think about Malathot last year, and they, they, they said right before, right before the Alabama, we're going to run her in the Alabama and then the Breeders' Cup. That's 10 weeks, 10 weeks apart. And it's just, it, you know, no, just, I'm not disrespecting those connections in particular, but it should be, you should be embarrassed. Honestly, you should be embarrassed to say, I'm going to run my horse. There's going to be nothing wrong with her, and I'm going to run her 10 weeks later because she's just too valuable, I guess, and you're too scared of her losing. Like, is that what it is? I, yeah, I, I think so. You know, one of, it's also one of the bad things about having a lot of these stakes-laden cards, too, because it seems as if the old Super Saturday at Belmont has become Travers Day, mm -hmm. right? And a bunch of horses run on Travers Day and then don't run again until the Breeders' Cup. So um, I, I'm, in the, I'm in the small camp of people that would love for us to – I know that it really limits our options. It also affects European participation. But I'd love a real conversation to happen about a Breeders' Cup taking place in December. Um, because it, I think it would really bring back a lot of credibility to fall racing that has really taken it on the chin over the last 
10 to 15 years. And I mean, no, no track has suffered more than Belmont yeah. in that regard. And there we've even seen some, some Keeneland drop off in, in, in recent years. And there's obviously always going to be overwhelming support for Keeneland, but yeah, those have been, those are things that, uh, that I think are detrimental. And I'd love to see us reverse course on some of them. I mean, look, you can say what you want about Churchill Downs in general. Um, I don't say anything negative about them because we're, you know, I work at a racetrack now, so I have to say nice things, but um, they get the Derby right. Yeah. You know, start to finish, they get the Derby right. They they have constructed a schedule now that has people talking about the Kentucky Derby in September. Yeah, we were talking, we were talking about it for four months from January on. We talked about the Derby pretty much every week. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And even when, I mean, I was listening to your show every week in 2020, and even when it was in September, you guys were talking about it every week then, right? I mean, you're, you know, it's, it's amazing. And so the fact that they have now using that September meet to run the Pocahontas and the Iroquois, and it's two weeks after Saratoga, and we're already talking about the Derby. Yeah. And so, you know, that, and, and the point system has worked out really well. You know, I don't think that, <clears throat> excuse me, that this year's result is any kind of indictment of the point system at all. Um, you know, there's going to be years where certain races end up being good and there's going to be years where certain races don't. So that's just part of the ebbs and flows of racing and uh, and makes it that much more exciting. Well, and I think if anything, it's, it's an argument for the point system because Rich Strike ran in those two races. He, he didn't run great, but he ran well enough to get on the AE list. He shows what's what's in, what's important is if you feel you have confidence in your horse, run in these spots. You don't necessarily need to win. Just show up and run. And if you run well enough, maybe you can get into the Kentucky Derby. It's an interesting idea you said about the the December Breeders' Cup. Then then Belmont will never get another. No, that's the problem, right? <laughs> we had, yeah, we had that one in 05 where it was like forty degrees and no one ever wanted to be back again. But you're totally right about the the Belmont Fall Championship. I mean, it has fallen off. You know, I, I shudder to think about the Jockey Club Gold Cup being a Grade Two somewhere down the line in the near future. But listen, you've been very gracious with your time, and now you got to get out of here and start calling the quarter horses. So I'll just get you out of here on this. It's a very broad question, so you know, take your time, think about it. Um, you have a, you have a young daughter. I don't know. She's obviously too young to really get the racetrack and all of that yet. I, but I assume once she's older, you're going to start bringing her there and, and teach her the game. Maybe maybe you won't. But 10, 15 years from now, when she's a teenager. Where is racing situated? Where is the handle? Is the handle up or down? Have we gotten the, the drug problem in racing under control? Is it more or less popular with the general public? What do you think it's going to be like in 10 or 15 years when she could actually develop an interest in the sport? Well, she came to the track on Kentucky Derby Day and she had a hat on. So it's a good start. Um, so, yeah, she will be exposed to race. She has been exposed to racing. Now, one of the good things about COVID was that she got to lay around and watch races with me nice. a lot. Um, but, you know... I mean, looking at it 10 or 15 years ago from now, um, a lot of what has happened involves uh, a migration of regular handle to computer assisted wagering, which I think is something that's going to continue in a very significant way. Um, I'd like to think that there's going to be an introduction of a fixed odds market to this country that will help handle in general. Will it cannibalize the tote to an extent? Yes. There's no question about it. It will take tote players out. However, it will eliminate a huge barrier to entry for a lot of young people that I think could really find themselves getting into racing. They just can't understand when it's explained to them why they got seven to two on the horse that they bet at eight to one. You know, so I, I think a little bit of that, and I got a, I have a ton of respect for the guys at Betmakers and what they're doing and, and what they've gotten started in New Jersey. So I'm really rooting for them. 
I think, Joe, I think there's going to be contraction. I think we'll have, we probably have about 10% fewer tracks now than we did 15 years ago. I think the only new ones maybe are the the one in, in Canada century mile. Um, I, I don't think there's going to be any new ones between now and, and 15 years from now. I know there's conversations about it in Georgia and Mississippi. Uh, we'll see. But um, I, I fear for what racing looks like long-term in places like Southern California, South Florida, um, because decoupling is a major issue in South Florida. I think the Stronic Group is committed very steadfastly to Gulfstream, and I hope so. But I, I think we're going to see fewer racetracks. We're going to see comparable handle. But I think a portion of it is going to be going to a fixed odds marketplace. I do think that racing in Kentucky will be strong and it will get stronger. I think the popularity of the Derby is just on this crazy upward trajectory. It kind of it blows my mind that as racing in general has become less popular, the Derby has become so much more popular. Um, it's crazy. We sold out every suite here at Sam Houston in March. Wow. You know, it was people wanted to come for derby parties. We we ran our first race at 1030 local time on Derby Day. There were already people coming wow. in. So it, it's wow. insane. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's sort of my roundabout answer. I hope that we develop some real alternatives to funding purse accounts that doesn't involve a, a big infusion of alternate gaming, because I think that's, you know, that's kind of the forbidden fruit. And, and we, we ate it hardcore 20 plus years ago. And, you know, look around at a lot of those places that had that initial infusion of slot money and see what's going on at parks and Louisiana Downs and, you know, places that really wish that they maybe had gone a different route as time went by. Yeah, it's a crutch. You know, that's all it is. And, and you can't you can't rely on it. Well, Nick, thank you so much for the time. This was so I could talk to you all day, honestly. This was so much fun. I know you're coming up Belmont week. I'd love to get a drink with you. And maybe in the future, we could sit down and do this in person. So thanks so much, Nick, for coming on. Definitely. I greatly look forward to it. Keep up the great work. And I appreciate you having me. Really appreciate it. And congrats on the gig. You're doing, doing a hell of a job, man. Thanks again, my friend. So before we get out of here, as is tradition here on Better Things with Joe Bianco, we're going to do a little bit of a future bet segment. Now, I haven't gone back and looked quite at how good my bets did in the first two episodes. I think some of them hit, some of them missed. Maybe at the end of the season, I'll go back and do a little rundown just for some accountability's sake. But so for this one, I'm a tennis guy. If you don't know, I play a lot of tennis. And if you're in Brooklyn and want to catch that work in tennis, give me a call. Give me a text. Hit me up on Twitter. I'm always around to play. But so the French Open starts this weekend obviously in Roland Garros in Paris. And I got a couple of little ideas for you, both on the men's and the women's side. So we'll start with the men's side. I'm going to give you a chalky play, who is Carlos Alcaraz, who's plus 220. If you haven't seen him play, even if you're not a tennis fan, watch Carlos Alcaraz. He's 18, 19 years old. I think he's not even 19 yet. I think he's still 18. He is the next big thing. He is going to dominate tennis for the next 10 years at least. He's incredible to watch. He's already beaten Rafael Nadal a bunch on clay. And it goes to show you how good he is. He's the favorite in the French Open. Rafael Nadal has won the Roland Garros 13 times. And Carlos Alcaraz, an 18-year-old, is favorite over him. So I like him at plus 220. But if you're looking for a little bit more of a price, there's a guy, Casper Ruud, who I like a little bit at plus 2200. Probably never heard of him, but as a tennis guy, I know him. He's a dirt baller specialist. He plays great on clay. And it's not really that era anymore where you just have to defer to the big names like Djokovic and Nadal and Federer. Some other guys can pop up and win majors these days. So that's a little bit of an outside shot for you. Casper Ruud at 22 to 1. On the women's side, we have a shockingly big favorite. It's Iga Sviantec. She's won the French Open before. She's minus 110, which is a in a 64-person field. That's a very, very low number. So I can't take that, obviously. So I got three women for you. I got Simona Halep 
at plus 1,400, so that's 14 to 1. She's won the French Open before. She's a great defender, sprints all over the court, chases everything down. So I got her at plus 1,400. Maria Sakari, who's from Greece, she's plus 2,000. I like her a little bit. Similar kind of build and similar kind of style, really darts around the court. And that's that's so key in, in clay court tennis as opposed to grass and hard court where it's more about power. The French Open and clay court tennis is a lot more about defense, and she's a really good defender. So to run it down on the men's side, I've got Carlos Alcaraz plus 220 and Casper Ruud plus 2200. On the women's side, I've got Simona Halep plus 1400, Maria Sakkari plus 2000. And trust me, if one of them wins, I'll be back to crow on it about it on the next episode. So thank you so much for watching Better Things with Joe Bianca. Thank you so much to Nick Tamaro for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Patty Wolf, and our editors, Anthony LaRocca, Aaliyah LaRocca, and Nathan Wilkinson. We'll see you next time.